<coughs> I, uh, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation. Uh, Arnold Corns, a manager to the stars. The Doctor. I'm in the star business too, in a way. Yeah, look, what's going on? What's all this about police? Yes, I remember everything! I know who I am. I am the Doctor. I am the Doctor. I am the Doctor! You're listening to Pieces of Eight, a Doctor Who podcast that this week has changed its episode because we wanted to pay tribute to Bernard Cribbins, not just a Doctor Who great, but a British national treasure. We're carrying on our trip through those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith, and you join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen and books, novellas, full cast audio, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else we can lay our eyes, ears, and hands upon. This week, we've put a chat with Paul Leonard about the People's Temple and Hold, so we can honour the memory of Bernard Cribbins, a man who, in his own autobiography, admitted he'd achieved the holy trinity of Doctor Who, doing it in the movies, on TV, and on audio. But Becca, before we chat about horror of glam rock, what do you think of when you hear the name Bernard Cribbins? Well, when I initially hear the name Bernard Cribbins, I think of Donna's granddad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And carry-on movies on a Saturday afternoon with my nan. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a name that you th- you hear it and you just smile. I mean, even to the name Cribbins, it's just it's a funny name. It's just it makes you grin. I mean, for me, he was there through the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, the noughties, the teenies. Uh, for me, um, whether it was like reading stories in Jack and Nori and the voice of Busby, who was the old BT mascot, a, a yellow bird, and he did those the voices for their adverts and just that voice that you hear and it's so just warm and reassuring and you just feel safe that's that's the words and of course as as you mentioned it's Doctor Who stuff with you being a younger person with you sort of he seemed to go quiet for a few years and then Doctor Who brought him back into the, the public consciousness and just reminded everybody how much he loved him I mean for me I was there for this first brush not when the film was released with Daleks Invasion of 2150 AD when he's PC Tom Campbell with Peter Cushing in the 60s movies and then yeah and and then it was just so lovely when Big Finish got him in to do what we're going to talk about today horror of glam rock sort of bringing him back before the TV series did and that's the great thing we just sort of fell in love with him all over again of course I know when when it was released that he passed away I looked up quotes by him to see if there was something that I could post to Twitter for us um, and although I didn't post it because it was too long, I was just wondering if I could say it because I thought it was very, very Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about Doctor Who in 1963, he said, I didn't actually audition, but when John Pertwee was leaving, producer Barry Letts interviewed a lot of actors, one of whom was me. I went along and sat down and he said, now then, what can you do? And I said, well, I'm a very good swimmer. I was a paratrooper. I could fight. And he said, oh, no, no fighting. No, the Doctor has never seen fighting at all. So Tom Baker became the next Doctor. And one of the first things I remember him doing was knocking somebody out. (laughs) And I think that that is 
brilliantly Bernard Cribbins and brilliantly Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, it's in fact I mean, an amazing life. I mean, the CD extras for Horror of Glam Rock, he talks a bit about his life and having been a paratrooper and things, and it's just an amazing life, so well lived. And it was wonderful when Russell T brought him in and we got to spend an awful lot more time with him. And uh, it's, it, you know, the thing was, when he passed away, I was thinking, did I interview him? And I had to think about this because, no, I didn't. I felt like I had and I felt like I knew him because he'd you know such a ubiquitous part of my life. And I'm so glad that he was, he was He did have that genuine granddad feel. He might have been Donna's granddad in the show, but he definitely had that sort of feeling that he'd have been brilliant, wouldn't he, to have him as a relative? He'd have always made you smile with a wee song or something silly. Yes. I always imagined that he had a big bag of Werther's in his pocket. <laughs> That's so true. It seemed I mean, like the sort of person. <laughs> Yeah, but when he turned up to shoot um, Voyage of the Damned, apparently he brought his own bag of props with so many silly things in there, including a rubber chicken, which Russell T quoted. Yes, interesting. I've heard about that. <laughs> interesting. That's, that's that amazing. Is brilliant. That, it's just somebody who's absolutely dedicated to it. And I oh, bless him. It's a very sad loss. I mean, he's one of those people you just thought he's going to be around forever because he's always been there. And oh, it's, it was, I was very, very sad. I got a message from my friend Mark, uh, he sent me a message just saying Bernard Cribbins with a sad face emoji and I knew straight away and just thought, oh, awful. But at least we're going to get one more dose of him next year when David Tennant's back on our screens as the Doctor so we can look forward to a little bit more Wilf. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, let's move back to 2007 and you can dust off your reading voice and tell us what the Big Finish website has to say about Horror of Glamrock. It was, of course, released on CD in March 2007, having first been broadcast on BBC Seven, the radio channel, on the 14th of January that year. I swear, when I actually finish my degree and become a teacher, I'm going to be using this voice all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the Doctor and Lucy go glam when the TARDIS makes an unexpected landing in 1974. Slade, the Sweet, and Susie Quattro atop of the Pops and brother and sister duo, the Tomorrow Twins, will soon be joining them, if the star-making Svengali Arnold Corns has his way. But will their dreams turn to dust at a service station somewhere on the M62, besieged by a pack of alien monsters? That's two weeks in a row. We've been to 1974. Last week we did Curse of the Fugue, and now Horror of Glam Rock. And not once did the Doctor and Lucy pop in to visit me, although that said, I wasn't born until the June, so... The story could have been earlier in the year when it was all cold, wet nights, or later in the year, so let's go with early. Anyway. Well, it's definitely snowing. There's definitely there's snow. There's lots of snow. <laughs> That's a good point. Oh, okay, well, let's go for early yeah, so in the year. so it has to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> let's hear the trailer. In the next episode of Doctor Who... <laughs> wind up here in the middle of the night, Trisha. If you sit in there long enough, you'll get to see all the stars there are. The best sausage and chips you'll ever get. It just looks like a grassy old motorway services. Oh, crimes. Why 1974? I was trying for your time. This is as close as I could get, as close as I'm allowed to get. Somewhere deep inside, Trisha, yeah, yeah, heaven. I've seen it all, believe you me. Most of them who stop here, they just want egg and chips. I could be a machine for all they care. It's, it's right outside. 
Most of those creatures are coming in! You do this a lot, don't you? Hmm? Danger, like this. It's one thing after another with you, isn't it? I don't go looking for trouble. But it finds you, somehow, every time. That's true enough. Horror of Glam Rock. What's your thoughts on this one? Again, we've got an unusual setting for a story. Last week we had a care home and here it's a service station. I think it's great, you know, the whole service station, care home. I think the Big Finish do the unexpected place settings very well. It's very much a, ooh, where are they going to be next week? Or next month, depending on whether you're listening. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, the fact that it's a recognisable thing that we can all relate to, because I'm sure at one time or another we've all been sat at some sodden service station in the middle of nowhere and just thinking, I just want to be out of here. <laughs> That's what made it really work for Unfortunately. me. Unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, what an amazing guest cast in there. They're, every single character in there has got so much to them. You've got both the Tomorrow Twins. Of course, we've got Arnold Corns and then Una Stubbs is just brewing as well as and keeping things going and then of course there's Antipat as well of course I mean I think Bernard Cribbins and Una Stubbs are like the ultimate grandparents aren't they oh absolutely I'd imagine you'd be more familiar <laughs> with Una Stubbs from Sherlock uh yes 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 <laughs> yeah, she's so good and I think the fact that you know to people like myself we think of her as that's older people when I say people like myself not like I've, I don't know Scottish people She's um, famous to, to us as like Aunt Sally in Warzel Gummage or as one of the team captains on Give Us a Clue before Lisa Goddard came on, Colin Baker's ex-wife. But yeah, she was just wonderful. Her and the late, great Lionel Blair. It's a shame Lionel Blair never did a big finish. He'd have been fantastic. But I think that she's so good. And of course, we've got Stephen Gately as well. So that must have been quite interesting for you as a young person who grew up with Stephen Gately as a singing person. Um, I don't remember him as a singer. Wow, you were never a Boyzone fan then? Oh, uh, I'm... <laughs> I, I was aware of their work. <laughs> but not quite I, I wasn't thing. a massive fan. Mm. No, no. No, you better tell us who you I... were into at that age. Oh, at that age, I was still living with my nan, so mm. it was things like Rod Stewart. <laughs> Right. Um, Ross Stewart and the Rolling Stones. It was great. And then people wonder why I've got slightly rockier tastes these days. <laughs> <laughs> it explains a lot. Yeah, yeah. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I just think they're just so good. And the, fact that, and the whole dynamic with Lucy and Auntie Pat, the fact she knows her future. And then there's that, that horrible moment when Pat realises that in the future she is, and I'll, I'll use the word nothing in inverted commas, she's a normal person. She never achieved her dreams, and it's just such a sad, sad moment. And I think Paul Mars is writing there. It's just brilliant. It's devastating and cutting. I know. Wonderful. Although, if there was a band, if there was a band called Methylated Spirits, I would listen to them happily. I'm sure they'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Are you a fan of that sort of glam rock kind of stuff, or is that just not quite you either? Because it, uh, it's. <laughs> I, I do quite like a bit of glam rock. It's a it's a guilty pleasure. We don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yes, I think uh, when you've got the likes of the sweet 
Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's so many great groups in there. You've got Alvin Stardust and David Bowie as well. Just all that sort of that whole era is is not my favourite, but I can quite happily listen to it. And you know, just get, particularly when it comes to Christmas, a little bit of mud. You can never go wrong with Lonely This Christmas. But yeah, it's not quite my musical thing, but it's definitely great. And the work that Tim Sutton did in the music here is fantastic. It sounds absolutely brilliant. We should of course mention the closing theme as well. All glam rocked up. We should. It's good. It's very it's, good. It's fantastic. Of course, I have used it <laughs> at the top of this episode as well, as everybody will have heard already, and uh, just remixed it slightly with our usual Paul McGann intro for this season. So, yeah, I had to do it. It would have been a shame <laughs> not to. Let's talk a wee bit about That's Arnold Corns. What a great character. In many ways, he's the villain of the piece, but then he turns into a hero, the way he's sort of using the Tomorrow Twins, and he's almost a, a Simon Cowell-type figure. Yes, I know... It's very much a, ooh, I don't like you at all. <laughs> you're very manipulative and you're only out for what you want, blah, 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 blah. And at the same time, but it's Bernard Cribbins. Why aren't I? What, what? He never plays a bad guy. This could that... be just me not knowing his previous history. Oh, no, he's always a goodie. He's always a goodie. There we go. It's great. I think the fact that... It's, it's he... Wolf. Exactly. Well, he's, he's about to it's be It's Wolf playing a bad guy. <laughs> no, I love it. I just think the whole the whole feel of it, the music, the sound design just feels so good. Uh, well done, Gareth Jenkins, and just making it sound 70s. And I think there's wonderful wee things, that are sort of colourful dialogue from Paul when he's talking about things like the tomato sauce dispensers, which are those plastic tomatoes which we used to have at home in the early 80s. And it's just those weird bits of attention to detail. I particularly laughed when they're uh, talking about um, they're going to Top of the Pops and obviously Bernard must have appeared on there when he had his own musical career as well. And the what, mention of the Wombles. All the greats passing through Bramington services, including the Wombles. The and, yeah, Wombles! Good old Bernard narrated them. Again, another part of my childhood. <laughs> and just, oh, it's wonderful. I just think The it's Wombles a, were a great part of everyone's childhood, I think. Yeah. Now, I discovered quite recently that Somebody who I know is fairly intelligent was talking about you know various creatures and things when they were growing up and sort of just saying that you know examples of clever animals and she included wombles as a clever animal because they tidy up. <laughs> oh no! This is absolutely true. I'm not going to name her for fear of identification, but she seriously included this in a in something she would written and um, she put wombles as intelligent animals. So, oh dear. The Wombles were very intelligent. <laughs> yeah, well, and they all sounded wonderful too. But yeah, so I'd say. Remember, 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 remember. I'm off. Sorry. Wumble, 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 you are. Doop, 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 doop. No, maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> to sum it up, I think this was fantastic story. I haven't listened to it in a wee while, and it was. I'd listened to it this morning in my walk. And it's just such a feel-good story. Yes, there's some very horrible, dark things happening, but it's so clever and it's got some genuine laugh-out-loud moments. And I just think Paul Mars absolutely gets Lucy Miller from the word go with Paul. I think he is he is a northern lad. I could be wrong there, but I think he, I know he's sort of spent a lot of time in Manchester. I just think he's absolutely got that sort of northern sense of humour and it's just it just felt absolutely right to me. Very, very good. I thought you were talking about Paul McGann for a minute and was really confused. I was about to say, he's from Liverpool? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going through the writer, Paul Mars. Sorry. 
Yes, he's the, the fellow who wrote it. Very clever doctor writer. If you haven't heard his story, The Peter Lou Massacre, I would hugely recommend it. It is an incredible telling of the tragedy that happened there. I'd say it's actually better than the film Peter Lou. Paul has a very distinctive voice, always gives you some larger than life characters and very, very clever humour. So let's hear from him now. I'm Paul Mars and I'm the writer of The Horror of Glam Rock. Paul, welcome to Pieces of Eighth. Always a joy to say hello again. Thank you. We're doing this, as we mentioned, um, to pay tribute to Bernard Cribbins, but in many ways I think this is the perfect story. It's just such a joyous, happy one, and you can tell that Bernard had a ball when doing it. I suppose you must have been really excited when you heard that he'd been cast in it. Yeah, it was a, it was a funny thing because the cast list just arrived at the top of the script. I can't remember, if it, I think it must have just been before the recording. And, and there was a lot to take in all at once. It just, it was suddenly there like a, a, a fait accompli and it was all these amazing people. I mean, I think at that point, I didn't know Sheridan Smith was gonna be in it either. It was that early on. I mean, I was right at the start of these Eighth Doctor adventures. So she was a new name to Doctor Who for then. And so I didn't realize she was the companion and Stephen Gately, I wasn't, I, I didn't know was gonna be or Una Stubbs or or Cribbins. So it was just this kind of one shock after the next looking down the page, and a very nice shock. And there was a sense, of course, when, when they did this series, that it was a, a step up, that they were doing something for the radio, and it was going to be a kind of concerted season with more or less the shape of what had been Eccleston's first TV season. Um, and that, that was very much in the, in, in the brief, and the shape of it would, would echo that somehow. And so kind of them having a very fancy cast full of recognisable names um, seemed part of that and that was that was really nice to um, to be involved in and exciting and it would be nice to be at the recording but I know it was it was kind of here and gone they'd done it <laughs> and of course I lived so far away it was one of the ones I didn't get to go to um, which is a shame but what was even nicer in a way was to have the whole thing arrive finished and complete when they um, broadcast it which was just after, in my memory, it was just after kind of Christmas, New Year, and listening to it as it went out properly, you know, rather than hearing some, you know, dribs and drabs or, you know, I've heard versions of things where it's just the dialogue or it's missing bits. But to hear it as this kind of amazing soundscape with all this music and, and you know, actual songs and all these voices coming at you um, out of the radio was, was magical. Yeah, it was like it was like having my own kind of Christmassy special. <laughs> I think that year we had, you know, Doctor Who the TV show on Christmas Day. We'd had Torchwood and we'd had Sarah Jane, all through that kind of Christmas and New Year, and then it all <laughs> finished the season with 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 Bernard Cribbins fighting flesh-eating Wombles in the, on the motorway, Unit <laughs> <laughs> Stubbs serving up baked beans. So so it was it was nice to be you know even in a a small way part of what was going out that Christmas, a very busy Christmas, and fantastic yeah. to have. In my memory, of course, the listing, I'm not sure if this is true or not, the listing was in the Christmas Radio Times. I think I might be back projecting that a bit. I didn't keep it, I wish I had. I'm not even sure. <laughs> the funny thing, of course, is that when Big Finish began, Gary Russell used to be in charge. There used to be those little cut-out bits of the Radio Times, as if these things are being broadcast. Yeah, um, in the middle of the CD listings and packaging, it's yeah, amazing. I'd forgotten that. 
uh, a really treasured thing from recent years is uh, the audiobook of the original Wombles novel by Elizabeth Beresford, which Cribbins recorded in its entirety just a few years ago. And it's like the um, the Virgin New Adventures version of the Wombles. In this. <laughs> you know, because it, it's it predates the TV show, but it's broader and deeper and wider. So it's it's quite interesting hearing him take on this bigger world of the Wombles. You can hear it in his his, his voice. He sounds delighted doing it. But that was um, a few summers ago. I was I think that's my favourite thing of his. Oh, apart from a version of him singing I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, I think, the song from My Fair Lady, which oh, yes. turned up in the compilation um, quite recently, which is just delightful. He's not being funny, he's not being, he's not doing a silly voice, he's just singing, and that was, that was nice. Love it. I have to say, when you're talking about New Adventures version of, uh, of Wombles, I'm suddenly thinking of Madame Chalet coming back in a rubber outfit with a blaster and shooting everybody and sleeping with everybody in sight but uh, maybe it doesn't quite go that far <laughs> no. no no that's that's something that only 20 year old fellas can write in the 90s <laughs> of course this was um nothing new to you writing the third adventure for the eighth doctor in a new series of adventures having previously done it with stones so it must have been yeah. quite exciting when you got that first email through from gary saying um i know i've got it here in front of me here at BF Towers, we're embarking on a Paul McGann miniseries, deliberately more in the style of the current TV series rather than our trad approach. 50-minute episodes, four one-parters, plus two two-parters, well-paced, exciting, thrilling, etc. We'll be releasing them as a box set at some point, but they've also got a guaranteed broadcast on Radio 7. Indeed, chances are they'll broadcast, actually, the broadcast will actually happen first, and they want to start broadcasting them in the autumn. And the turnaround we're looking for is pretty sharp, very sharp indeed. So how did you find that up against a really tight deadline to try and get some ideas well, together? I, I love deadlines. I never um, I never worry about that. I work quite quickly. It's nice to be asked, um, to be thought of. And it's nice to jump in quickly with your suggestions. And I think, I mean, I, as I remember it, it was, it was while I was cooking. I was doing a spaghetti sauce <laughs> and I looked at email and uh, and this popped up, and just and I think by the time I'd I'd finished cooking, I had my ideas sorted out, and I knew I didn't want to do any of the stories that might move a story arc along. I knew I didn't want to bring back an enemy. I knew I didn't want to do kind of a climactic piece because you're competing with everybody else. I'd rather clear myself a little oasis that's mine, and be the kind of space that. I don't know, well, that, that Mark Gatiss had doing his Dickens episode. And in some ways, the ideas in mine riff off the ideas in his from that season and, and subtly echo them, also send them up slightly, because I had thoughts about the the kind of themes that he was he was dealing with. So third in line seemed a good place to be. And, and I, it was it was snapped up quite quickly by by the, the team. I can't remember how quickly, but I think I was first, if not one of the first, to be kind of put in place. Which was, you know, the same with Stones of Venice years before that with McGann's first season. And I, th you know, and, and, and was and Stones, of course, was was given to him first. And I think recorded first, but I get then placed further down, you know, the line in terms of how this other thing develops because that's where I've placed it. It's nice to have a new companion who's no, you know, no one's heard yet, no one's 
going to know at that point how they're going to be played and you get to um, establish them but it's it's better to to write a story not setting them off but you know once they're established and um, that's a nice place to be and in both cases with um, Charlie and with Lucy yeah with, with with so with both of them it was nice to to, to be right there at the beginning and, and the things I was having them say becoming part of the the law I always felt with you know that, that McGann because I'd done the books because I was so heavily involved in the eighth doctor books and then from the beginning in the eighth doctor audios I always felt very left out I have to say that I was there with Stones of Venice and not asked back and that you know the second season of McGann of course with Charlie all those people ended up on the TV show so I felt very <laughs> left out in the cold by everyone by the time it came to 2006, I'm very left out of the eighth Doctor story and the ninth Doctor story. I was like, oh well, never mind. We love you, Paul. So, well, <laughs> um, but it was funny, you know. It was amazing that, that all those people writing for that, that especially that second season of began end up on the on the show. They clearly knew something I didn't. <laughs> Little portal in time and space that they whistled off through to success, and um, not that I'm bitter. <laughs> um, but so it was fantastic to be asked when it, you know when when the, the TV show had established itself, and then the idea of Big Finish doing a show that would somehow be its audio equivalent, somehow its older, younger brother, whatever that is, with McGann as this kind of shadowy doctor in the past. Yeah. But you know, also with with some of that kind of galumphing haste and ad hoc nonsense and his kind of brio that he had early on they put that back in for the Lucy Miller stories I felt that the overlong overcomplicated McGann stories as they went on especially when they went into that universe the divergent universe which I never understood how can a unit I mean maybe it's me how can a universe have no space and no time <laughs> it's not very it doesn't lend itself in my mind to, to the most exciting of ideas but then you know, I, I love the idea of the Doctor being in an established universe. I mean, at the moment, I'm loving the Orville, and they've done a, an amazing job of building, I think, something that began jokily, and you know, they've, they've built this amazing universe where you know who the people are, the races, the collisions, the conflicts. And I love the idea of Doctor Who existing in a universe like that. To move it aside into a universe where there's no backstory for anybody, I think is uh, perilous. <laughs> and, and quite the other way, you know. But then again, you know, I'm all in favour of people trying new things out in Doctor Who. But it was nice for it to go back to kind of exciting adventures in time and space and have that slight light-heartedness that I felt the Lucy Miller stories had at the beginning. That, of course, soon became dark and serious of its own accord. And I think that's just the nature of a story going on and on, that people start to excavate deeper, darker themes. Yeah. Um, perhaps. I think the the collision between Doctor Who and Glamrock is just glorious. Are you a big Glamrock fan? Yes, I was. Yeah, always, always. And because it's uh, a time of uh, of particular time in Doctor Who, it's um, you know the best. And and if you look at you know Top of the Pops in 1973 with people dancing around badly in the background and Slade in the foreground or. Or Mark Boland coming in on a papier-mâché glittering swan. It looks very much like Doctor Who of its era. You know, compare, contrast with going to Omega's Palace and the Three Doctors. You could, you could 
And I always had this idea that it would be wonderful to have bands in Doctor Who, like they used to in, in the young ones. And imagine the three, the, the five Doctors when they're going across the heath and they slide back and there's just Ultravox there on the blasted moor beside them doing a number. I always thought that would be a fantastic idea. And I've pushed the idea of having songs in almost all of the Doctor Who's I've done. So obviously glam rock, but before that we'd had cabaret songs in the Wormery a few years before. And I've kept on kind of trying to, to um, shoehorn them in. I don't know why, it's just a, an obsession really. I think it uh, works though. It's sort of, I think it's, you look at contemporary stuff, the fact that pop music places something in a particular time. And yeah. that's what it's always worked for me. And it does, again, I say with, with Capri and the Wormery and, and here we've got the, the glam rock. And I have to say, there, I think one of the, the lines you wrote in there was obviously written before Bernard Cribbins was cast. We were talking about all the greats having passed through Blamington services, including the Wombles. And I did guffaw at that quite loudly again today. <laughs> I think yeah, it must have been, unless it was added, unless it was added by somebody else during the, I can't remember. It's the work of many hands, these wow. things. Sometimes lines slip in. And if you're not there as writer, um, you don't get to slip them back out again. If they're not good <laughs> enough. But that one was good enough. And I can't remember if it was me or not. It probably was. I mean, I love the idea that the Wombles toured in their outfits, you know, in, in very hot, yeah. <laughs> going about as a Womble in a transit van, I yeah. imagine. Um, but it is, I mean, you know, the casting comes out of the same place. My, my collision of ideas comes from things like the jumble sale I went to when I was nine, when in our school, you don't get jumble sales at schools anymore like this, I don't think. And, you know, for like five pence, I got the 1975 Doctor Who annual, and then for 10 pence, the first Roxy Music LP, which is like <laughs> the best swag ever from a, a jumble sale. And, and in a way, this audio is a collision of, of both of those. And in the casting then to bring in voices like Cribbins, whose, you know, whose voice is as iconic and as central to the 70s as the voice of Tom Baker, Basil Brush, David Bowie, you know, those kind of, you hear them and, and a time is conjured immediately. So it's brilliant to put him in there. Unistubs as well, actually. She yes. had a voice that places you in a particular, for me, a particular era. Yeah, I particularly like the Tomorrow Twins and, and the reference, the, the line about referring to them as the Tomorrow People, which did make me chuckle as well. And it's it's just such a, it's such a brilliant idea that it's very strange that the Doctor hasn't really encountered pop stars before in the past. And when you think about it, it's such an obvious thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it should be done every season. I think something with the Supremes, something about... Um, <laughs> you know, when, when people like the Supremes toured with Dusty Springfield um, and they came from America and they went around all these kind of, you know, seaside resorts and with, <laughs> in the 60s in... in um, Presumably it was all black and white at the time. It would be lovely yeah. to do something like that. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's lots and lots of, you know, and I've, I've always thought there should be a, a story set behind the scenes at Live Aid. <laughs> no, there's an idea. Remember. There's an idea. I should never come out with these things in public, but yes, no. that should be done. Do you know, I've, I've, I can give you my sort of Live Aid, or what was Live Aid, tw Live Aid 20 story. I used to work in the local newspaper and for where mid-year comes from, Canvas Lang. So um, he, we both, and I'm, we're both from the same town, and I phoned him up to get a quote for the piece I was writing. And he answered the phone and said, yeah, okay, I'll give you two minutes. And uh, so I was chatting away to him. Then his mobile went and uh, he said, give me two seconds, Kenny. Bob, I'll phone you back. I'm just in the middle of a call. I'll, I'll phone you in two minutes. <laughs> so he put Bob Geldof off to talk to me. So 
There we go. There's my uh, my my, my one and only encounter with, with Bob Geldof. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's. I think in this story, the characters are all. They're just so you. I mean, if I if I'd listened to this, and I didn't know who'd written it, I could just tell it's you. It's just those larger than life characters, and they've just got such an incredible backstory, and it's covered in just a few lines. And the thing that really, really broke my heart today was listening to it again was with poor old Pat's backstory and the fact that it's yeah. done in such a nice way to say that, and then you are nothing in inverted commas and she's just ordinary and all her dreams and hopes are all that, dashed. That was, it was very important for me to create that moment because we'd had, in some ways it was my commentary back on Doctor Who on TV where it's, it became a bit of a theme quite early on <laughs> and it continued beyond the first year of meeting people in history and going, you are so, so important. And you, it's like a kind of lifestyle guru in time and space and telling people that they're, you know, later it became this idea of fixed points in time and space and people who blah, blah, blah. But it, it, it did seem a bit of a kind of, you know, self-esteem coaching thing. And the whole thing of the companion always turning out to be stunningly important to the history, you know, the future history of the universe. So, and to me, it was like, oh, just, you know, can we just have some modestly ordinary people having adventures in time and space because that to me is much more interesting how people become heroic or don't become heroic faced with ridiculous situations and actually it goes back to you know, things that like harry potter doesn't it like you know he is there and he's the most important person in that world and that to me is a betrayal of the character in a way that, that you want them to be they were ordinary but then they became brilliant through their own you know shenanigans and, and Doctor Who has kind of gone that way. And I think I think that's just the way you know, Russell sees it. To me, there's two kinds of heroes in, in fantasy and science fiction. There's those who you know begin in obscurity and then realize that they're Perseus. They realize that they're the, the son of, of Zeus and that they're, they're, they're gonna inherit the world. And that's the Harry Potter thing. And that's that's what Doctor Who has become. But actually Doctor Who is, is the other kind of character, the one who begins in heaven and decides bugger this I'm gonna go and live amongst ordinary people and that to me is much more interesting it's the opposite of Lord of the Rings or yeah. um, whatever yeah. and and so Antipas is a long way of answering the fact that Antipas is it's important that she says oh what am I gonna be in the future and Lucy says you're just my Antipas um, there's nothing you didn't have you know, this amazing <laughs> life you weren't a drummer with a great you know fantastic band and she's deflated. But then, of course, you know, it gets worse because when we come to the sequel, we find out she's been eviscerated by a zygote. <laughs> I, I can't remember, but I always I always felt a bit, um, again, left out, you know, because I created Bandy Pat and brought her back with a surprise thing of that she's been married to a zygote all those years. And then the next thing I heard, they killed her off. They'd done a third part to the um, anti-pat stories and somebody else wrote it and I was told afterwards how they'd finished it. That's not how it finishes. <laughs> not in my head. Because yeah. um, of course, you, you project on how these characters go even if they're a tiny part of somebody else's machine. Yeah. They'd kind of made her a bigger part and then finished her off, which was a bit of a shame. Yeah. But Just, You mentioned there um, about um, the, the fact the doctors come from greatness and come down. Uh, from there, mm. um, I, I put it to Paul McGann that the Doctor is the Tony Benn of Time Lords, and he thought that mm. was absolutely on the money. So sort of like he's given it up because he yeah. wants to be one of the common people. He wants to live I like common people. I think that's 
but it has mythic underpinnings. Mm -hmm. This is, yeah, I can see that in a kind of political way. That's kind of complicated, isn't it? <laughs> Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn, <laughs> which doctor? And you can, you can you can map the politics onto different doctors like that. That there is such a a variety, really, in their approaches to do with how they fit in with the establishment, how they fight for or against the status quo. That has shifted, not necessarily with doctors, but with different people, you know, um, writing or, or different people producing the show. That has definitely shifted, and that's that's the kind of the response of a show like that to to politics of the day. I, I kind of tend to prefer to look at it in the kind of mythical way. You know, who who is he? Yeah. Who is he being from Nordic myth or because I think uh, it's been said before, isn't it? These are our contemporary myths. That's why things like Doctor Who and other fantasy shows or Marvel films or whatever are interesting because we are wrestling with mythic tropes and mythic characters and saying things about the world with them. So I, I, I've always seen Doctor Who in those kind of those kinds of terms because they're just really interesting stories, isn't it? Why did he turn his back and, and not want to be posh? Yeah, <laughs> not not want to have. It's about privilege, not wanting to be privileged. So I am slightly against the idea of stories where they go, "You in this moment are the most." You know, I just happen to have met you, the most important person in the universe, and now we will. So that to me is not always the most yeah. exciting route. So, how did you find this Doctor and Lucy dynamic to write for? Because I think the dialogue absolutely sparkles between them. I think it's two mates having fun. And I think you've, you've absolutely got that Lucy's Northern English voice. I think obviously the fact that uh, you've spent a lot of time in uh, the Lancashire area, in uh, yeah, true. And I think that absolutely brings her out. That's true. And she um, and, and I did two in two years. Um, would it be nice to to kind of see that through? You know, see that through the arc a bit more. But I really enjoyed writing her and having him. Because I could see them on telly. That was the thing about them. I could see them being extremely popular on TV uh, as, a, as a duo. Once, once, you know, the first one had come out and once the first season had come out and I knew who I was writing for, for um, the Zygon story that I did for season two that became called The Zygon Who Fell to Earth, but was originally yeah. called Trevor of the Zygons. <laughs> um, another one of my titles. <laughs> And actually, going back to glam rock, one of the stunning moments of inspiration was, and people must try this, when you can't come up with something and uh, titles have to be right or they're completely wrong. You know, they, they, they arrive, you can't fiddle with them, they're perfect. And I couldn't get it. And I had a shower and hot water on the back of your neck. It must do something to the red blood cells whizzing around your brain. But instantly I had the horror of glam rock in my head. It was yeah. instant. And then you know couldn't get to the computer fast enough, covered in suds, <laughs> running through the house yeah. before it disappeared again. Because at that um, point it was hazy cosmic jive, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. The, the outline was that because a line from um, uh, Starman by Bowie, and that of course I mean it, it's, it's a good title because it it's about the aliens communicating through music and people picking them up on their their radios. And of course, the other Bowie thing is the, the stylophone, which is used to such great effect in Tim Sutton's song, Brilliant Effect. In fact, that was the only bit of it I heard before it went out, I think, before the Christmas, I got sound clips. So I got the demo of the song, I got the finished version of the song, but also the glam rock version of the theme tune that goes at the end. So they are the sound of that Christmas, 2006, for me. 
um, that those those particular recordings. It's not a bad um, soundtrack to have, Paul. It's not a bad one at all. No, it's not at all. No, I mean the the the, the glam rock Doctor Who theme is the one. If I was producing the show, it would go right at the start every week. Yeah, well, we've used it at the start of this week's episode, so oh, there we go. It has it had to be done. It had to be done. Excellent. It's the sweet, isn't it? It's, it's the siren from Blockbuster. Yeah. That's um, there. And all the wah, um, wah, wah sound as well is just perfect. Clever. Tim's a genius. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Of course, the other thing she mentions, but we've sadly we've lost as well as Bernard having lost Una Stubbs and Stephen Gately over the years and, and they yeah. really you cannot because I was having a wee look at the script and I cannot hear anyone's voices but them doing it now I think that shows how brilliantly Barnaby Edwards cast it yeah I mean there's also the thing that we've you know we've heard it over the years and it's, it's like looking at any show that you've enjoyed it'd be hard to I'm just thinking who else could do it now but you're right the, the the thing of the cast dying off over I mean what is it now it's 15 years yeah it's inevitable and these things are going to be time capsules when it comes to it in the end that's what they are which is is delightful in loads of ways but it is it's kind of frightening I saw a terrible thing yesterday where um, Nichelle Nichols had died and some Star Trek group had put out a photo of the original cast all clustered together and they'd shaded out all the dead <gasps> ones. No! <laughs> and then saying you know, to the rest of them, live long and prosper. And there's just, you know, three of them left still in, you know, with in colours and the rest were all faded grey, which I thought was the most tasteless thing I'd ever seen. That's unbelievable. <laughs> the most tasteless thing I saw yesterday, put it that way. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's a lot of... of Piety is the thoughts and prayers thing, isn't it? When people say, you know, their thoughts and prayers are with people they've never met, or, you know, even there's a lot of that kind of weepiness about. I think we live in a very kind of sententious and sentimental age. You know, I, I'm sad about Uhura, but you know, she, she did all right. <laughs> she had a good life. She did. And the same is true of Bernard Cribbins and Una Stubbs. And Stephen Gately, of course, died way too young and was, yep. you know, vilified by hideous fascist right-wing press you know, so yeah. okay I, can um, i just say paul at this point fuck the daily mail that's two weeks in a row we've said it in this podcast fuck the daily mail <laughs> it was gove's wife wasn't it um, yeah like his name i forget who used to say sarah things. sarah vine yeah that's one the dreadful things about you know about him in particular vile so i mean him i can be you know is uh, that's that's terribly sad the others you think you had fantastic careers, and you will always be remembered for the you know the work that generations of people have loved. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm wary of the kind of the the, the general kind of weepiness <laughs> in culture that we have. I think people, it's a kind of it's an, it's one more form of virtue signalling, isn't it? Uh, we want to we just want to celebrate Bernard because he's, he's, I think that's, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's yeah, somebody yeah. who's. I mean, he's, I was thinking about it. He's brought entertainment to four generations of my family with my grandparents, with my mum and dad, myself and my daughter as well. So it's, you know, somebody yeah. who is something you can't have many people who who had a career well, was, like that in showbiz. I guess he was just fucking old, wasn't he? <laughs> 93, <laughs> but brilliant. Yes. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so how do you look back on the whole horror of glam rock experience? Is it a happy one? Yeah, I guess it is. It was, um, oh, it's like any of these things that happens here, you know, it happens in my study and inside my head. It's 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 rare that you're at somewhere where it gets, you know, you're at the recording or it's happening in front of you. 
and those things are quite procedural actually when they're making things the only one that wasn't was was doing the tom baker stuff that i did where it was kind of an adventure each time but to me it's 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 something that, that goes on just inside my head, which sounds crazy, but it is. I think that's best. I write best from a place where it's like a dream happening to me. Yeah. And if I can recapture that feeling on paper, and, and, and but a lot of it is just hard work and hammering things out and, and, and taking umpteen notes and, and doing rewrites. I'm very good at taking rewrite notes and pushing things further. Uh, I can't think there was that much on this though, but I, I work hard on these things, and I hope that shows. I work hard at making them look, making them feel light and look easy. Yeah. I don't like work where you just feel the kind of groaning weight of people trying too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I really, think... I'm aware of that that possibility in in uh, of, of work being overwrought. And yeah. I think a lot of, I've got to put a lot of work into making it feel effortless. I think that's that's the job of the writer. Yeah, it definitely feels effortless. It just feels that the jokes come thick and fast. There's the dark moments and, and just even you know, simple things like the wonderful moment at the end when the doctor's doing that traditional doctor thing of building a gadget out of any old nonsense that he can yeah. find. And and then good old Arnold Corns redeeming himself and bringing up the funnel at the end. And yeah, I love it. It's cool. definitely, it's such a favourite of mine, this one. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. The um, the, the shopping, not the shopping, the uh, motorway services place is based on the one outside Washington in County Durham. And we used to stop, you know, between visiting grandparents and, and going home, we used to stop there to buy comics and, and have, because the, the shops, for some reason, they were the only ones that got loads of American comics and all the things like TV comic and uh, uh, summer specials. That, when, when they did these huge kind of versions of these comics, yeah. I remember buying them there and going across the, the glass bridge between the two sides, which was glass on both sides. And we used to pretend it was it was Star Wars. We pretended <laughs> it was the Death Star, you know, from 77 onwards, because yeah. it felt like it, running backwards and forwards. This glass thing over a motorway, it was very exciting. So that's all that's all in there. And a bit of Fortin services near Lancaster, which was on the way to Blackpool when we'd go to the Doctor Who exhibition. And um, I remember buying the 20th anniversary Radio Times special there at Fortin Services. Wow. Again, you know, a visit to a to a um, motorway services being kind of the most exciting trip you can have. That is working class northern life, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I, well, trust me, it's the same for Scottish as well. Very much so. I love it. We had, um, we had blighted lives, didn't we? We were... But in many ways, they were the best of times and they were the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> but that's somebody else's work and I'm not going to nick his credit. <laughs> Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. No, it's fine. I'm very Thank happy. you. Thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you so much to Paul for his time for today's episode. Much appreciated when he's a very, very busy man, but he wanted to come on and pay tribute to Bernard. So we really appreciate that. I did try to get hold of Barnaby Edwards, who directed the story, but he's quite busy at the moment so he actually put a really nice tribute to Bernard on Twitter last week so I will read that out for you. I first worked with Bernard Cribbins in August 2006 when I cast him in a big Finnish audio where I was directing Doctor Who Horror of Glam Rock. He played the manager of a 1970s pop duo played by Claire Buckfield and Stephen Gately. Una Stubbs played a tea lady in the same story. 
Paul McGann played the Doctor with Sheridan Smith as his companion. Despite the fairly stellar lineup, there was only one indisputable star, Bernard. Everyone adored him. I remember he was so supportive and kind to Stephen, who'd not really done much acting before. When I gave Bernard his first note, he looked at me over his glasses and said, Oh, you're one of those directors, are you? The kind who care. I chuckled self-deprecatingly. Bernard, you're in for a disappointing day. I wasn't, of course. He took direction like a dream. He made dozens of brilliant suggestions all day, including line changes both for him and other cast members, and completely re-choreographing a scene to make it work better. He did it not out of ego, but because he liked the material and wanted it to be the best it could be. When he found out I was a Dalek, he said, I was in Doctor Who once. One of the Daleks was played by an Australian guy who kept using the upward inflection at the end of every line. You will be exterminated? None of us could look at each other when he was in the scene. I told Bernard I was a huge fan of his audiobooks of Winnie the Pooh. I'd grown up in the 1970s listening to them. Did he remember recording them? He paused, and I thought he was politely ignoring me. He then proceeded to do whole chunks of it from memory, every voice perfect. The following year, Bernard was cast in TV Doctor Who, and when we filmed The Stolen Earth together, he came up to me and said, I remember you. This is all your fault. They thought I was dead until you cast me in that radio thing. <laughs> Not true, but what a sweet thing to say. I confessed to him that I'd got his autograph when I was six. I'm not giving you another. Not even the Queen has two. When we shot the paintball sequence, he said, <laughs> I hear you guys rehearse with the tops off. Don't worry, my aim's rock solid. He raised a violently shaking hand. I have so many fond memories of Bernard, all of them good. He was a generous, kind, clever, funny, inventive man, a truly fantastic actor. I have few heroes in life, but Bernard was one of them. Thanks for all the fun, you lovely human being. Isn't that amazing? Just really, really moving. It is really moving. So sweet. Yeah, the fact that he was, he just seemed as much fun off camera as he was on it. And it's a huge regret that I never got a chance just to say, not even just to get an autograph or to interview him, just to say, thanks for making me laugh all these years. And I mean, he's, his turn and carry on spying with Barbara Windsor is incredible. He's playing it pretty much as a straight man, sort of like a James Bond everyday character. He's so good in that. It's comedy timing. It's magnificent but yeah i absolutely absolutely love that and so thank you for that tweet barney and uh, i hope you don't mind just quoting it i hope not <laughs> i'm sure you won't no i'm sure you won't well that's just about all we've got time for this week if you enjoyed this week's pieces of eight or indeed any episode we've done in the past please do leave a review for us on itunes as it means more people can find our series and it's always appreciated so Where's our lovely TV movie TARDIS taking us to for next week's episodes? I'm going to re-listen to The People's Temple again, so that I am refreshed for our chat about it, finally. <laughs> and we can have a chat with Paul Leonard and the short trips editor Steve Cole about it. And then we've got a special guest star, Cat, hopefully ready for the week after that. That sounds perfect. So until then... Meow. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Rebecca Chapman. Bye-bye. Bye.
accustomed to her face She almost makes the day begin I've grown accustomed to the tune She whistles night and noon Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs Are second nature to me now Like breathing out and breathing in I was serenely independent and content before we met Surely I could always be that way again And yet I've grown accustomed to her looks Accustomed to her voice Accustomed to her face joys, her woes, her highs, her lows are second nature to me now. Like breathing out and breathing in, I'm very grateful she's a woman and so easy to forget, rather like a habit. One can always break And yet I've grown accustomed to the trace Of something in the air Accustomed to her face 